You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Good to be with you, church, and welcome. Uh, when we began our teaching series through the Psalms last month, we desired to gain language for speaking to God. Right? That's, that's our hope in the Psalms. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of confusion, doubt, fear, frustration, in the midst of pain as a result of even our own sins, or even a collapse of faith, we've been, we've been desiring to gain language for how to speak to God. And today we look at uh, Psalm 63, and we look at a psalm that may be a stumbling block for some of us, because uh, what we're used to when we come to God and, and speak to God in prayer is expressing to God what is wrong and asking God for help. And we desire that in expressing our need to God and Him helping us and answering our prayers, that we will then find peace, we'll find a place of joy and comfort when God responds to our prayers. However, this psalm shows us something much different, a much different path to peace in difficult times. And in this entire psalm, there's not a single word in which the author expresses fear or sadness. There's not a single word that expresses need from, the, from David, the author, to God. There's not a single word that expresses a crisis or a problem or a collapse of faith. There's not a single word that expresses a need for God to do anything at all. There's not a single word in this psalm that makes this prayer sound like much a prayer at all. At least not, a lot, not, not, uh, not like a lot of our prayers. This psalm shows us that the path to peace in God is not in asking God for doing something, but the path to peace is in our praise, our adoration. Our path to peace is to have our entire heart in wonder before God for who He is and what He has done. I say this is a, a stumbling block because when we close our eyes in prayer and we get some quiet or we think about what has driven us to a place of prayer, we're often driven first to a place of prayer because of a remembrance of our problems rather than a remembrance of God and his majesty and beauty and love. But even Jesus teaches us the pattern and and path to peace in our prayer has to do with praise as we begin our prayers. Even in in the the Lord's Prayer recorded in Matthew 6, the path to God's peace is is starting out with with, uh, praise and adoration. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise you. We adore you. We talk about how awesome you are. And so this psalm shows us how to adore God, how to praise God, how to approach God in times of crisis, in times of fear, of frustration or confusion, in times of seeking direction. And we begin with our adoration. I'm going to show you how from this psalm, how to adore God through five aspects of our adoration to make it easier to remember. I'll give you them in the acronym ADORE. Just be glad it's, it's, I didn't give you the, ad, the, the acronym adoration, okay? Adore, just to remember, you can write them down too. First, A, how do we adore God? We add up our praises. How does this psalm show us this? David in this psalm, he doesn't just say that God is great. This would be a very short psalm if he said, God, I love you. Thank you for who you are. That's my prayer. But he adds up his praises. Another word for adding up is to, to enumerate to count the ways that he loves God. He adds them up as as if to say, oh, how I love thee, let me count the ways. 
If you want to praise God, you have to break it down. You have to think it out. You have to spend time in contemplation and meditation on God and who He is and what He has done. And then to repeat those things back to Him, to tell Him, here's how I love you. Here's what you have done. God, you are powerful. You're glorious. This is here. This is how you've shown yourself powerful to me. Here's how you have answered my prayers. Here is how you have been merciful to me and gracious to me, specifically in these times and in these places. Here's what I love about you specifically. You're my help when I am struggling. Your hands are strong and you guide me through times of difficulty. You satisfy me when I am soul hungry. You're there when I'm lonely. You know, it's only happened, thankfully, it's only happened once in premarital counseling when I've done premarital counseling. But when I've asked, what do you love about each other? What do you love about your fiancé? You know, I usually have to interrupt them to, you know, to stop talking because we have to move on to the next thing. Because they, they talk about all the th- stories, all the ways that they love each other. But it's only happened one time when the guy responded, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever thought about that before. <laughs> yeah. That's not what you want to hear. <laughs> in a premarital counseling, don't worry, it's not you. You're not here. We need to think it out. We need to contemplate. We need to think, here is how I love you. And I won't just tell you, I love you for who you are. Well, exactly, how do you love me for who you are? And you know, when that fiancé does start to talk about, here's what I love about you, you know what happens to the girl? Her eyes open up, she leans forward, she leans in, she starts to blush, she's hooked in, she loves every word, she hangs on every word. And the deeper the person explains, here is specifically how I love you. She just lights up. Because it's not enough to just say, I love you for who you are. I love you that you're in my life. How do you love me? Today's Groundhog's Day, right? So I, it's by, by, by law, I have to reference the movie Groundhog Day. I think it's a, an obligation. <laughs> of course, Bill Murray pray, plays this character who wakes up every morning, repeating the same day over and over again, Groundhog Day. And he, he must repeat it every, every day, over this same day, over and over again. But everyone else uh, lives this day as if it's the first time it's happened. So they're unaware of, of any of it. But he wakes up experiencing the same day repeating itself. And they, re- they experience it as if it's the first time. And over the course of years of repeated days, he falls in love with this woman, of course, and spends every single day with her. I think it's like 12,000 days or something like that. Um, uh, but she feels as if she has just met him. And after spending years with her, finally he professes his love to her. And he says, I, I, I love you. He tells her, I love you. And she says, you love me. You don't even know me. And he says, I know all about you. You like boats, but not the ocean. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. What do you love about God? What do you love about your relationship with God? What do you love about Jesus and his work for you? What do you love about his character, his majesty, his actions, his thoughts, his affection? What do you love about him? It's not enough to just say, thank you for who you are. I love you. Thank you for all you've done. How do you love him? Add them up. Enumerate them. Count the ways. This is how we adore God. This is what David shows us in the psalm. We add up our praises, but we don't stop there. We demonstrate our praises. We've got five, so we're going to keep going. We demonstrate, that's the D, we demonstrate our praises. This is the second aspect of our adoration and praise to God. David is demonstrating his praises musically. 
physically, vocally, corporately, gathering others, come and, and hear these praises. Let's, let's praise God together. He's inviting us to join in with him in his praise and adoration of God. It is not enough to just praise God in our heart. You know, the Bible talks about the important the importance of praising God and pondering Him in our heart. But the Bible doesn't leave it there. He talks, the Bible talks about how important it is not just to feel this praise in our heart, but for our heart to overflow in demonstration for, for our praise to God. Musically, vocally, uh, corporately, <coughs> physically. When it comes to uh, your personality, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just not... I'm not the expressive type. I, I'm not the, the musical type. You, don't, you consider yourself more reserved when it comes to demonstrating your feelings, uh, reserved in feeling things. Uh, you're not like you know, my, my daughter, Kate, who, who she said, uh, last night we went to daddy-daughter dance, and she said, I love love. So, so maybe you're not like her. You're just, you're just bubbling over with affection and love. It's like, this is just who she is. When it comes to music, you're the first to admit that I just don't sing. That's just, that's not me. It, I, I sing in my heart. C.S. Lewis addresses this in his book, Reflections on the, Psalm, on the Psalms. Uh, here is this quote from his book. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical icons, celebrities, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, sometimes politicians or scholars, and even a very modest meal. What a beautiful day it is today. And I thought you didn't sing. Check out my new tattoo. And I thought you didn't sing. Hey, I got this promotion at work that I was really hoping for. I got it. I thought you didn't sing. Hey, Instagram, look at this meal that I just ate. And I thought you didn't sing. We praise. We know how to praise. We, inherently, we are people who praise. We see it all over our world. It is not fair to say, we are not given permission to say, oh, that's just not me. I don't, I'm not the praising type. I'm not the expressive type. On social media, the top three things that we praise, right, are ourselves, our children, and our food. We know how to praise. We know how to cast praise. We know how to express praise on things and people and even very modest things that are far inferior to God. Instagram and social media should give us all the evidence that we need to be convinced that we are people who know how to express our praise. And why is it that we feel such strong desire to share our praise with others, rather than just keeping it in our heart and just keeping it to ourselves. We, we see a beautiful sunset and, and we just wish someone was there to share it with us. We do something amazing at the, at the gym or on the ball field or somewhere else and we just, did anybody see that? We're in our office and we crumble up a piece of paper and we throw it and it actually goes in the garbage can. We're like, no one was here. What is it about us that we want to, when we, something amazing happens, we, just, we want someone else to be there with us? C.S. Lewis says that, he says that joy is incomplete until it is expressed. 
And it's fitting. We understand how this works in our soul. We understand how it works in our world. We see it everywhere. We feel that joy, it's like it's incomplete. It's like 80% there to feel this passion. And it's like 80% there. We need something to push it over the edge. And what that is, is sharing it with others, expressing it, getting it outside of our hearts. We, pres- we, we demonstrate our praise to God for a good meal, for, for good weather, for a game. You will sing your praises today. You will sing. You will all, you'll be like an orchestra of praise when you're watching the game. And the more that our hearts are engaged in God, the more passionate the demonstration of our praise of Him will be. The more praiseworthy the object or the person, the more, the more our praises come out. The more photos that are shared, the more words are used, the more God is honored, the more joy we have when we demonstrate our praise to Him. And so we add up our praise, we count the ways we love Him, and we demonstrate our praise by by vocalizing it, by expressing it, by sharing it with others. And thirdly, we order our loves. We must order our loves. This is how we adore God and praise Him. We order our loves. Ordering our loves means that we compare our love for God with other things that we love. And then, here's the big part of it, not only do we just compare and order the loves, but then we arrange our life in such a way that it's in line with that order. Look where he does this. Your love is better than life. In verse 3. Your love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider your love for God more important than your love for your own life? In other words, don't just say God is a God of love, but order your life in such a way that you believe that God is a God of love and therefore it doesn't matter who betrays you because if God is a God of love, his love and acceptance and affection is supreme. He is a God of love. And every other love that you receive from other people is less than God's love. So it is okay if people betray you. It is okay if you are unloved by others. It is okay if you lose a friendship or relationship because God is a God of love. What does it look like to order your life in such a way that because God is a God of love, his love matters most? And everything is after that. That means that nothing can happen to you that can take away God's love for you. And if you have the love of God, you have everything. We read that verse in Romans 8 this morning in our confession of faith. Nothing can take you. Nothing can take me away from your love. Your love is the most important. Your love is better than life. Here's the thing. It is more important to lose your life than to lose God. Do you believe that? What does that mean for us? Don't just praise God for being a God of love and wisdom and truth, but compare every wisdom in the world, every truth and semi-truth and half-truth and untruth that is expressed in our culture. Compare every love of affection and every virtue and value. Compare all of that to God and order it in such a way as if to live by saying, God, whatever you say is more important than anything anyone says. Your opinion, your perspective, your reputation is better than anything that has ever been expressed. And I will live my life as if that is true. So if you say it, conversation's over. Do you live your life that way? 
It is better to lose a job than it is to lose God. It is better to lose a friend than it is to lose God. It is better to lose your health than it is to lose God. It is better to lose your life than it is to lose God. You see, our job, our spouse, our children, our health are very good gifts from God. They are blessings from God. But when these things and other things become our Savior, that is, they become the place to which we looked for our fulfilling life and our identity, then these things become not gifts, but they become idols in our life that we worship, which can never truly satisfy. If we desire to, or, to adore God and to sing praises to God, we must, must order our loves and then must, must arrange our life to fit that order. If we struggle with loving God well, the problem is, is never because we don't have enough love to go around, but it's because we have disordered love. Well, if only if I knew a little bit more about God, if only if I had a little bit more time, if only I had a little bit more love, there's so much going on in my life, I would love to give more to God. If only I had a little bit more opportunity to do so. It's never an issue of not having enough love. We are made with love written in our hearts. It's that we have disordered our loves. It's not that we've fallen out of love with God. It's what we once loved God and maybe think back to a time when you felt closer to God. That's how we feel. Maybe a time where you first became a Christian and you ordered your life as if, if I have Jesus, everything else can be taken away and I'll be totally fine. But you've wandered from that. That has become less of a conviction. You think, I actually need a lot more other things. You think you've fallen out of love with God. Love is not a hammock. We don't fall out of it. No one falls out of love with God. They simply steer their love to other things, less important things. Usually we steer our love towards our appetites, our dreams, our goals, our ambitions, our expectations, our hopes for how we think our life should go, and we steer it away from God. If we desire to live a life of praise to God, we must let him arrange our desires to where they rightfully belong. That is the path to peace. That is the path to joy. How does that adjustment happen? We order our loves. We order them. We actually have to take time to actually sit and contemplate and consider what is most important. As, if, as, as David does that, he says, your love is better than life. He starts, he starts with the big stuff, and you've got to think that maybe there's, there's other things that he hasn't even sung about in this psalm, about the things that he compares God's love to. We must take into account everything that we look to for pleasure, security, and comfort, and then actively tell God he's much better than those things. That's how this happens. That's how we make the adjustment happen in our life. You ask yourself, well, what do you love? Who do you love? What gives you pleasure? And then you have to actively say, God, you are better than these things. You're, you're better than my finances. You're more secure than my 401k. You are more com- uh, you're a better companion than my friends. You're a closer friend than my spouse. You're a greater protector than our armies. So far we've looked at three active aspects of praise, things that we do. 
The next two are actually passive ways that we praise God. The first three are things that we engage in actively, but the next two are things that, not so much of things that we do, but things that are done to us that allow us and teach us how to praise and adore God. We cannot praise God until we have been prepared to receive from God. That's the R. We must receive Him. David says in verse 2, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth with praise will praise you with joyful lips. What's happening, What's happening here? Think about what David is doing here in this psalm. David is, is looking upon God, where God is enthroned in power and glory. He's looking upon him, and he's taking hold of a couple things. He's looking and taking hold of. I'm beholding your power and your glory. And when he does that, he's satisfied. So you, there's a movement here. I look upon you, I take hold of you, grasp you, behold you into my innermost being, and then I'm fully satisfied as if I just had this really delicious meal. I'm full of joy, I'm full of peace, I'm okay no matter what happens to me. That's what's happening here. Power and glory. These are, these are strange things to take hold of. These are strange things to look upon and to grasp, aren't they? They're abstract qualities. You don't just go to the grocery store and buy power and glory, <laughs> unless you get a you scratch off and you win or something. I don't know. Um, how does he look upon God's power and glory and take hold of it? Here's how this works. The determining factor in our relationship with God is not our past or present or what we have done, but whether we receive what God has done for us. This is the determining characteristic and factor in our relationship with God and our path to peace. Not in what we give to God, but in what we take hold of from Him. And He gives power and glory. There is no better way to see exactly where God gives both power and glory together than at the cross of Christ. We have a better picture. David is saying this. God has given David a picture of His power and glory. David looks upon it. But we have a better picture and a more fuller picture of God's expressed power and glory because we have seen what Jesus has done. We look back to the cross and David looks forward not knowing how it will happen and he just sees a glimpse of God's power and glory. We see it more fully. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God's glory is his righteousness, his majesty, his honor, and the allegiance that is due to his name because of who he is. So God's glory is his weight, his, his, his justice, his righteousness, his perfection. Think about that. God's glory is just all that gives him substance. It's just everything about God that is weighty and good and right. And the Bible says we've fallen short of living up to that. We have fallen short of living up to God's glory. When we look to God and see who he really is, we are to initially feel initially humbled and judged because we are not like God. This is the natural response when we come into the presence of God. Okay, you are glorious and I am sinful and just mortal and broken and I don't deserve to be with you. That's what's going on. And therefore, we've missed the mark of living lives that please God. 
But then Paul says in Romans 1, he also says in Romans 1.16, the gospel, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you see what's happening here? On the one hand, God's glory condemns because it's weighty and we have fallen short of it. But his power saves. Paul says these two things come together at the cross where Jesus dies for our sins. It is expressed in the gospel at the cross of Christ. Here is what the gospel is. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever thought possible. Yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined because Jesus lived and he died in our place and he is alive today. God's glory demands perfection. And God's acceptance and love is all poured out for us on the cross where his power is expressed and he, Jesus died on the cross, takes our sins, defeats the devil and death itself, and God's power raises him from the grave in triumphant victory. The only way to look up, this is, I'm just going to catch you up to what, the, what God's people always knew about the glory of God in the Old Testament. The only way to look upon the glory of God and to not be an, an immediately killed by it is to be perfect. That's the only way to do it. It is to be perfect like God. And David says, I can look upon your glory and not die because of your power that allows me to do so. David has received what God is giving to him. We now know what David was given. David was given the righteousness of Christ. He was given the righteousness of Christ that was undeserved to him. Jesus was righteous. He bears the penalty of our sin through the death of the cross, and the glory of God is now satisfied. So we can look, all who believe in him and trust in him, by faith get to look upon the glorious God in all his perfection, and instead of being terrified and killed on the spot, we get to be filled with joy. Not because of what we have given to God, but because of what we've received from him. God gives Christ's righteousness to us. We embrace and believe in him, and, and, and God regards us as righteous, as if we have never sinned. We get to walk into the presence of God, walk into the throne room, and are greeted by him and given peace instead of condemned and terrified and killed right on the spot. This is God's way of salvation. This is his way to peace. This is the path to joy. The essence of the Christian faith is to see that Jesus is good enough and we are in him. It's, it is possible to be a Christian and pray like a non-Christian. How so? To pray to God and to offer praise to Him while still standing before God and approaching God on our own merits and our own character, our own hard work, looks very pretty on the outside. It looks like we're trying really hard and we're really humble. 
but there's death on the inside. Jesus says that we're like whitewashed tombs when we do this. The religious leaders did this at the time where they pray elaborate prayers to God. They come into the presence of God and saying, look at all that we have done. We've obeyed your law. We have been righteous in our deeds. We have shared our praises to others. And he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look so pretty on the outside, but there's death on the inside. You're dead. As long as you say to yourself, oh, I'd... I'd like to be good enough, but I'm still a sinner. Then you're denying God and you'll never find satisfaction. You'll continue to be cast down. You'll continue to be disappointed. You'll continue to be frustrated with your life if you keep coming to God and saying, I just want to be good enough for you. I just want to be good enough to have the life of peace that you desire for me. And there'll be times you think you're better at times and you'll feel happy. And you'll say, I'm actually doing what God wants me to do. I feel really happy and joyful right now. And then there are times you're not going to be so good enough and you'll say, I'm really a loser. I really need to do better. I thought I was better than I was, but now I'm really sad again because I'm not as good as I thought. It doesn't matter what you are guilty of. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of in your past. And even if you have felt at times that you have come within an inch of hell, it doesn't matter when it comes to being justified by God through faith doesn't matter how close you came to being cast out from his presence forever. When we, when we receive the good news of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, Jesus becomes our substitute. God looks at us as if he is looking at his perfect children who have never done a single thing wrong. He's taken our sin. It means he's taken, he's taken our sin and our guilt and we get to take his life. This is the path to peace. This is the path to comfort. Don't you see then that how we order our life, we order our loves, this deserves our most triumphant, our most significant, our most paramount love, love that God has poured out on us. He takes our sin, we take his life, and all this by grace, it is a gift that we have received. The determining factor in our relationship with God is not our past and present, as I've said, but Christ's past and present. I'm going to make a bold statement because that's what pastors are supposed to do. You cannot truly adore and praise God if you believe that his love and your salvation is based on something you have done. I've thought about this a hundred different ways and it's just simply not possible. Because if you are praising God with an ounce of your merit that deserves his love, you are ultimately praising yourself. If we want to be people who adore God, then we must be people who stand on grace and nothing else. If you believe that you are loved because of who you are, then any praise is really directed to yourself, isn't it? It sounds like this, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are loving. Thank you for making me smart, for making me handsome and capable and just an all-around great person. Wait a minute, I think you're praising yourself in that prayer. Thank you that you gave me the strength to, to cry out. Well, you're still, you're still praising yourself. When we stand on anything but grace, that's what our prayers sound like. We're thanking God for making us great. 
Imagine telling a woman you love, you are good and lovely and amazing and special and true. And then she asks, why am I all of those things? And you say, because you chose me. <laughs> Thanks? <laughs> Wait, is it, that's a praise for yourself. <laughs> you must be pretty awesome to love a person like me. <clears throat> all of those compliments are now empty. All of those compliments are empty. They were all about you. If we want to adore God, we must be people who first and foremost receive what he's given to us, his power, his glory, that come together at the cross. We must receive his, his, his righteousness by faith alone. Finally, I need to get to number five. Only when we receive God, only then can we truly enjoy him. There, there is in the love of God a, a richness a pleasure, a satisfaction in our soul that fills us with every spiritual joy that makes us complete. Comparable to a kind of food that hits the spot every single time. And this is what David is saying, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This is a sensory experience. It is, a, it is not just a head knowledge. It's not a, a book awareness of information of God. Well, of course, I enjoy him. Here's all the doctrines I've studied this year, and these doctrines are awesome. No, is this a sensory experience where you enjoy God and the relationship with God that, that, that hits the spot? There's a richness of, of relational intimacy and pleasure and satisfaction for having him in your life. High animal fat uh, is coming back. I'm glad. It was gone for a, a generation. <laughs> High animal fat, though, was, was so much a part of the, the Hebrew diet, so much a part of the diet of God's people, uh, more than it, than it is today, more than it definitely was in the last generation. And their high, highest idea of, of a good food was uh, summed up in two words, marrow and fatness. Marrow, and, like the, the stuff inside of bones, cut open the bone and take out all that grizzle and all that grease and all that jello. Yeah. Fatness. No skim milk in Israel. No skim milk. Full fat, full flavor, which represented a body that was feasting on the best. The best that God could provide. The best that hands could find. And when, we get, when God gives us marrow of his love, we're satisfied in the fullness of joy. Nothing, not from being good enough, not from our past and present, this sensory experience, this fullness of joy, this peace everlasting will never come because of our record. It comes because the fullness of God's love that he gives to us. Looking to his righteousness of Christ who gave his life for us and feasting upon the pouring out of his affection and love for us. One last thing I need to say. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray.